0: Welcome legionaries to episode 11 of Legion Cast. As always, I am your host Alfarius, and joining me as usual is my co-host Alfarius, and joining us is our usual Hobby Around Table co-host Alfarius. Take it away, boys.
1: Greetings Alfarius. It's always great to get back with you Alfarius. Welcome to Legion Cast everyone. Great great episode. I'm excited to get to this one, but uh, let's let's make sure we start off right. Um, what are we drinking tonight, boys? I'll start. Um, I am drinking a little Christmas present, courtesy of my my wife's parents. Uh, I have got some homemade wine. Uh, this stuff is delicious, but it is also the silent killer, much like the Alpha Legion. Uh, this stuff will destroy you if you let it, so gotta be careful.
0: Very appropriate. Uh, same as last time, I'm drinking another Manhattan, which I'm very happy with, so Uh, I'm still kind of recovering from the holidays. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me back on, guys. I, too, am Alpharius. I try to say it like they do in the audiobook. Um, For what I'm drinking, I just woke up like, you know, half hour ago, so I haven't quite gotten to that point yet. I'll have to catch up.
0: I see you're also Alpharius. Well, I'm pretty Alpharius myself. Well, this is a, a pretty interesting book we've got here. We're talking about Legion by Dan Abnett. It's easily one of my favorites. There's a lot going on here. We've got uh, a lot of kind of spy versus spy elements is you know with this the the backdrop of this pretty epic kind of war where the Imperium is kind of rediscovering how to how to fight this certain enemy. So we'll get into that after we do a little hobby talk. I will go ahead and start off over the New Year's weekend I was traveling and was able to meet up with my brother Manipul for a couple rounds of Titanicus. We played two different games at seventeen fifty. The points value seventeen fifty. And my first, the first match, I ran a Corsair battle line, which is five Reavers, and I just could not get across the board quick enough, and I was just picked apart by his artil- artillery. It was a pretty painful match, and I was pretty bitter by the end of it. So the next day we had a rematch. I took a different Maniple.
1: What uh, what was Alfarius playing?
0: Oh, Alpharius was running his Legio Mordaxus. So he was running a Warbringer, a Warlord, a Warhound, and a Reaver. So he had, I can't remember what Maniple he was running, but he was able to just kind of... Um, uh, hang out in a couple different spots and he was able to control the board. And as soon as I got up to him or got close to him, you know, he always had range on me from the very beginning because Titanicus is very different from another mech game like Battletech where half the, you know, the first couple of rounds is just getting into range with Battletech and Titanicus, the ranges are so great with your weapons. You're, you know, in, you're in the danger zone right away, especially against, uh, Maniple's Mordax, Mordax's list is, you know, the artillery pieces with the Warbringer and the Warlord, so I just, I couldn't get to him quick enough, and then the second game, I ran ran a squadron of Warhounds, which is really mean, and on, like, the second round, I got close enough to him where I popped his Warlord, which was very satisfying. After that, it was a bit of a grudge match, but I, I eventually came out on top, and I got sweet, sweet revenge, so I was really happy with that. We kind of rediscovered why we love Titanicus so much, so um, that's going to be, I think, a part of my 2023 hobby resolutions or hobby goals that we're going to talk about. So, um, yeah, I was, uh, super happy with that. Yeah.
1: Titanicus is always such a fun game to play. I know we got really heavy into it like last winter and then dropped off a little bit after we had our, our big, uh, event, but, uh, It's something, it's on my list as well.
0: I I have been feeling the itch to get the engines out to walk again. It's definitely worth it. And, um, you know, it's not that we lost interest in Titanicus. It's that Horus Heresy took off like a rocket for us. So it was really easy to dive into that. And it was so, uh, the old Hammer feel to Horus Heresy really let us jump back in because it it really kind of got us back to our our fifth edition roots, you and I anyway. So that's kind of how I felt about it and, uh, like I said, I rediscovered the love, and um, I love looking at Titans on the on the warboards. So definitely going to get into that. I'll be working on my Lanniscaara this uh, this year, so I'm happy and excited for that. What about you guys? What have you been up to?
1: Well, I will say um, of all the Christmases that I have had in my life, this was one of them, and <laughs> I I did traveling uh, this year for Christmas, which is always difficult with a one-year-old and uh, particularly difficult with a one-year-old in a blizzard. So, you know, it was typical holiday traveling story. We got stuck on the tarmac with a screaming baby. The airline lost our luggage, you know, just all, all the fun. The kid decided to cut four teeth all at once. Just good times, you know, but it was good to see the family. Alpharius and I got some FaceTime, which is always nice. We weren't able to get some any games in. It was a uh, it was overall a good trip. Um, hobby related gifts, I did get a new airbrush. Um, I got Nawada Eclipse, which I'm really excited about. I'm really excited to try out. Um, what about you guys? How uh, how was Alpharius? How was your Christmas?
2: Yeah, you know, just uh, chilling. I was actually house sitting for uh, Brandon taking care of his doggos while he was out. Uh, I, I, I have to correct you. I am Alfarius. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, much like the book, that's going to get confusing real quick if we keep that up. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, just doing that. Uh, hobby-related stuff. I mean, I built a bunch of stuff. I finally got my 3,000-point lists all assembled up, just waiting for the weather to clear to get it all primed and painted. Yeah, I think the only other thing really hobby-related is uh, the post office struck again, and uh, apparently Alfarius Manipole, still hasn't gotten his Christmas model. Uh, So I've been on the phone dealing with that, so hopefully he gets it soon. (laughs) So we'll see how that goes.
0: Man, if that gets lost in the mail, there is going to be like a collective like all of us are going to be pissed about it because that was like probably the best model of the whole show. Well, I can always
2: just paint another, I suppose. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. It's no small or it's no, no great feat for a man of your talent. I'm sure it's just, just another, just another alpha Legion model for you. Right.
1: I, I really hope that does not get permanently lost in the mail because as we all know here, there is actually no bigger whiner in this group than Manipole. And I'm saying that because he's not here.
0: <laughs> he's my brother. Um, So I uh, forgot to mention, I did get something really awesome from Manipole for Christmas. He got me one of those um, photography boxes that's all lit, and it's got like several different um, uh, inserts that you can put in for bat- different backdrops and different lighting effects. And I'll be really excited to take some awesome pictures of my terribly painted models with it.
1: I've always enjoyed your painting. It makes me feel really good about my painting.
0: Glad to be of service.
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad that you guys had a, gr- a good Christmas um, because it has come to my attention that you know who also had a good Christmas? The Good Ship Chili Dog, who sent us another email uh, that we're going to go ahead and read over now. So from the Good Ship Chili Dog, hail Legion Cast. We apologize for the delayed response, but we took Warwick's tip about crashing into a planet, which turned out to be terrible advice. It's the Imperium. That's excellent advice. Uh, but having made our repairs and salvaged the crew, we are once again spaceworthy and back with another inquiry. The crew of the Imperial battleship Chili Dog once again begs your assistance in a matter of great importance. Our crew is the last remnant of a lost legion either the 2nd, the 11th, or the 21st, we're not sure, that was decimated after the tragic death of our Primarch, Cano Hormel, which we're going to have a debate about this later. I I have (laughs) questions for you guys. That's pretty good. After long years of waiting, the Emperor, beloved by all, has blessed our apothecaries with the skill and knowledge to create new Primarchs once suitable Terran specimens can be found. Our librarians have heard tales of three such specimens, and one must be selected. The first one is one who is called Big Daddy Elon. Our scholars believe that he will one day own the galaxy. The second is Brother Alexius Jones, for no other mind contains a more accurate knowledge of warp corruption and demonic possession. The final option is the protector of fandoms, the great Giga Chad Henry Cavill. Your wisdom is appreciated in this matter, and we, appra- we await your response. The good ship Chili Dog. Thank you, good ship Chili Dog. We are glad that you uh, you guys are, are space-worthy again and out there defending the Emperor and doing the good work of the Imperium. But I have a question before we get to this for the two of you. Does Chili have beans?
0: Yes. Yes, yes. How is that even a debate?
2: I mean, it can. It doesn't have to. Okay, thank you,
1: Warwick, for taking the gentleman and scholar's approach.
2: I was gonna say the the no beans thing is kind of a Texas thing. I don't know if they really do that anywhere else.
0: I don't know that the rest of this episode is gonna work out with the current <laughs> <laughs> the
2: panel.
1: Let's and... listen, listen. I understand that there are some people who don't like beans in their chili. And to them, I say, that's fine. Heaven is not for everyone.
0: (laughs) Well, my big question here for the battleship chili dog is, so you rammed a planet. Did you get them? Like, that was the whole point. You couldn't virus bomb everybody. And who did you go for? Did you just guess? Did you flip a coin? Anyway, well, I'm glad that you got the ship back because those are not easily replaced. I don't know why you bothered with the crew. Those are replaceable. And as far as it being bad advice, I mean, if you got your target, how bad could it be?
1: I I agree completely. So, all right, Warwick, I I want to jump to you first. Who uh, who here is going to be a Primarch? And then I want to add a caveat to this. Would any of these Primarchs stay loyalist, or would any of them go traitor? And what do you think?
0: Oh, um, let's see. I think that uh, fabricator. M- General uh, fabricator. General Musk is probably busy on Mars. So, you know, he's not going to be available for uh, gene coding. Grandmaster Alexius Jones is busy crusading with the Grey Knights and God Emperor Cavill is stuck on the golden throne. So I, I don't know where to go from here. I mean, uh, if, if I had to pick one, it would have to be God Emperor Cavill. He will, he will never fall to chaos And, you know, he is a defender of the fandom. I think we've already established that.
1: All right. And, Paul, what about you? Who who are you picking here?
2: Yeah, I got to side with Warwick. That sounds pretty good. Probably Cavill. (laughs) I mean, he's basically already going to be a Primark, Space Marine, something. Probably, depending on how their production goes.
1: Okay, I'm going to go against the grain here. And I'm going to pick Battle Brother Alexius Jones. Because I want to see an entire legion of Alex Jones's deep gene code.
0: We already have ang- we already have angry Marines. We're gonna beat the chaos gods. I don't like him putting warp dust in the water. <laughs> but no, I
1: I can't I can't pick I can't pick Henry Cavill because he's the God Emperor already. He's not gonna lower himself to being a Primarch. He's already exceeded that. Come on now. And then as far as uh, as far as for Elon, um, I think he'd be a good Primark. He'd definitely fall to chaos. Well, actually, that's not true. He'd uh, he'd post a poll. Should I turn against the Emperor, I will abide by the results of this poll. And then he'd just let everybody pick.
0: Wouldn't he get trolled by, I don't know, like maybe the Tau hack, the, uh, the astropathic network and flood it with a bunch of erroneous votes?
1: Hey, this is 30k, man. There ain't no there ain't no fish space commies.
0: (laughs) There's only two things I don't like: people that berate players for the faction that they play, and tau players,
1: and and imperial fist players. You're bad people, and you know
2: it. I wouldn't know anything about that. (laughs) All right,
1: well, good ship, chili dog. I hope that our advice is once again helpful to you. We didn't tell you to kill yourselves this time, so I feel like we haven't really given you
2: that good of advice. Just kidding. Don't it's, do that.
0: It's Warhammer. They'll find a way. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah,
2: you know, the the Astartes trials only have like a 10% survival rate, so we're still doing okay. We're meeting quota.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, actually, that's probably the right answer. Is uh, you need to take all three because most likely two of them are going to die anyway, through no fault of their own. Anyway, let's get to, let's get to kind of a last section here, real quick. We're we're getting kind of long on the hobby section, but
2: what's on your paint table? Um, yeah, what am I working on here? So I'm just wrapping up the Pride of the Legion list. I got one more Contemptor to build, and then yeah, we're getting into the airbrushing get it all started
0: i am still working on Cataphract terminators they are taking me forever it is trim for the trim god at this point i've got to do all i have to do is the gold trim on like their greaves and shoulder plates and then that that first layer of armor on the shoulders is going to be white and that's all i need to do i just need to buckle down and do it i am terrible at allocating hobby time and especially now that uh like the, the holidays were crazy and all the holidays just wrecked me so Hopefully, I'll be able to buckle down and finish that.
1: Awesome, yeah. I currently am working on a Middle Earth project. Um, I am working on Soladan, the Serpent Lord, uh, getting ready for my Harad army. Then I've got to paint a Mumak for the same same project, and then I think it'll be back to to thirty k. I've been I'm trying to be a little more disciplined with my my hobby this year, and I'm making plans of what I actually want to accomplish versus just throwing anything on the paint table, um, as I have in the past. Okay. Um, real quick Warhammer news here. Uh, they dropped the, uh, the Pariah Nexus trailer. I'm not particularly excited for that. Uh, the animation actually looks good on this one for a change.
0: Right. So I'll definitely check it out. Um, I, I've got Warhammer Plus, so I might as well watch it. Although I'm behind on a couple of their series now, I haven't watched um, the Interrogator series yet, which I heard was good. But um, I I look I like the look of the animation. It looks better than a lot of anime these days. the The theme, or I guess the uh, the setting, looks interesting to me. There there's the whole Necron narrative that we're going to be looking into, and it's the it looks like the same cast of people from the Indomitus launch trailer. So. Uh, i'm excited for it
2: it's cool to see them actually looking into necrons i think this is the first time they've really gotten anything lore-wise outside of maybe like one or two books so that's neat i mean primarily especially when it comes to the media side it's always chaos with a little bit of tyranids so anything not that's pretty cool
0: yeah um i'm i'm sort of. Certainly been interested in them, although I tried to read the uh, the Indominus book. And when they got, I, I think Gav Thorpe wrote that. I'm not a huge fan on him, but um, getting into the Necron narrative in that book really slowed the whole book down for me. So maybe I need to give it another chance, but um, at the time I was not feeling
2: it. That's the, like, uh, start here book, right? And yeah, no, those aren't really... Super great because a lot of those are like this squad comes in a unit of three, just like you could buy in the stores, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah,
0: that's that's why it doesn't appeal to me because I'm a veteran fan. So these like these like uh, narrative launching books or like beginner level books, they they're not really my thing.
2: Yeah, honestly, if you want a good Necron book, it's um, what's it called? Infinite and the Divine.
0: I've heard that one is really good, but I haven't checked it out yet. Because yeah. my my thing was, is um, if I'm remembering this right, there used to be a rule for Black Library where authors could not write from an alien perspective because an alien's line of logic would be so foreign to a human, we would not be able to comprehend it, really. So uh, that used to be a rule. So when they started getting into these, um, these stories about uh, writing from an alien perspective, I kind of lost interest.
2: Yeah, they did that generally. Um, I think they did start to change that within the last five years, and Infinite and Divine is the good one.
0: Well, I will check it out.
1: All right. Well, I think uh, that'll wrap up our hobby section then. Um, so we will uh, we will take a quick break here, and then we'll jump into Legion.
0: Welcome back, everyone. As we said, we're talking about, uh, I think this is book seven in the series. I'm probably wrong on that. But uh, this is Legion. And we're talking about no Legion other than the Alpha Legion. And this is a bit of a topsy-turvy story. It's very spy versus spy. We've got a lot of different, uh, very interesting themes here. I was um, really convinced that... um, subterfuge, secrecy, misdirection, and control are the themes of this book. Because as we find out, the Alpha Legion always has to be in control. And they they take it to an incredible degree at the climax of this story. And uh, we talked about a little bit, the way that Dan Abnett writes this book you could cut out about half of it. That's just banter and characterization and you get the same. Well, you wouldn't get the same story. You would get like all the important points, but half of this book is characterization. And to me, it, it really pans out in a way that it makes you care about a lot of these people. Even, um, there's, there's one guy that gets like, there are two lines describing him. And then he gets like one line at the end of the book. It's fucking Strabo. And like, He's barely in the book, but I still ended up liking him, even though there's not shit to him. Talking a little bit about that, and is it... I don't really feel like it's a flaw of the book, not at all. Uh, as I said, it makes you care about the people. We've got uh, a very interestingly characterized uh, Imperial Army here in so much that they're not just standard line troopers with las guns. We have several different units here. We've got the Regnat Thorns, we've got the Geno 5-2 Chiliad, and we have got the Ultramars, so I am really excited to see what you guys think about that. Uh, I want to talk about how the the Chiliads operate. They've got this kind of different command structure that we haven't really seen before. But uh, as I said, Dan Abnett uh, puts a pretty efficient bow on it, and like I said, makes you care about the whole story. So,
2: yeah, I, I think something about that sort of ancillary character introduction is it makes the book feel um, very real. You know, it it gives you that immersion because, you know, when everyone's walking around and talking, they're going to mention, you know, oh, man, fucking Strabo over there doing his thing. Just kind of like when you're at work shooting the shit with your coworkers and you're just talking about people and things. It just makes the world feel more real by having that stuff, even if they don't really serve a plot point. It makes everybody feel like they're not NPCs,
0: right? Because Dan Abnett isn't describing a character; he is writing a character describing another character. It's all in story. It's not like a narrator doing it; it's the story itself doing.
1: It. Yeah, I even like the the amount of character that he puts into all of these different units uh, of the Imperial Army. You know, up until this point, you know, we've just seen the Imperial Army as kind of the backdrop to whatever the Astartes are doing. But in this, uh, you know, we get a ton of depth and character to each one of these different um, army regiments. You know, we were talking in our in our break time about the uh, regiment that has the thorns and how they're hardly even in the book. But they're completely fleshed out on like who they are and how this armor works and all that stuff. And they that but they're not even they're not main characters at all. Um, I love the breakdown of how the Chiliad works. I have always said that if I ever did a Solar Auxilia army, I would do the Chiliad. Um, the other unit that I think is just really, really cool is the Lucifer Blacks. I, I've always been fascinated by them. I think that they're awesome. Uh, but I, I I do love getting that, that character to these units because... It, it makes it feel like this Great Crusade is galaxy-wide because these units are completely different from each other.
0: So this is a story that, though it's about the Alpha Legion, the Imperial Army almost steals the show in this one. Uh, it's uh, really interesting to me that uh, so much of the story focuses around uh, maybe four or five characters, but we've get, got this way bigger picture that we still end up caring about. So the... The story kind of starts off where the Imperial Army is, or this... um...
1: The 670th Expedition, which which is important, actually, to it. It gives you an idea of the size of the Great Crusade. This is not the first expedition, and it's not the last one either. But it is the 670th, which gives you an idea of how big this... This whole Our, effort the is. first
0: expedition we started out was the uh, 63rd expedition, and we're way down the line at this point. And that's something that um, that the prota- I kind of feel the protagonists in this book talk about is the Imperium expanded so quickly and so violently that a lot of the kind of elder forces in the galaxy had to recognize that the humanity was a galactic player at this point when nothing like that had ever been seen the expeditionary fleet has kind of been brought to a standstill on this planet called Nerth. And the thing about the the humans inhabiting this planet is that they are a very uh, simple technology level. They have, like, um, percussion or uh, ballistic weapons. They don't have LAS pistols or or LAS weapons. They don't have um, interplanetary travel. They are... Uh, confined to this one planet, they're a very simple race, or I guess a very simple culture, not very uh, technologically dependent, but they have managed to bring this Imperial Expeditionary Fleet to a standstill. And we get the sense of the the scale of this army being thrown at this problem. And it's not just the Imperial Imperial Army. There's a, a detachment of Titans involved in this as well. And they're pretty powerless to stand against what the uh, the Lord Commander in charge of this fleet in a rage called it air magic at one point. And it is completely capable of turning aside fire, denying charges, um, just completely halting the Imperial advance. And this kind of thing is pretty unprecedented, which is uh, a, an overall theme of the Horus heresy because these kind of things have not happened and tell this story. We've got two or three hundred years of history before this series starts, and these weird things are just now starting to happen. The Alpha Legion catches wind of this, and we'll kind of find out why later on, uh, that something weird is going on on Earth. And so they start to subtly infiltrate the entirety of this theater, this this, uh, war theater. And it, it happens in such a diversive way, um, nobody really sees it coming. And we'll get a little more into detail on that later on. But uh, out of nowhere, early in the book, the Imperial advance is halted at this city called tell you And out of nowhere, well, we we get this uh, this character, who's, uh, this character Bronsi, who is this character, Hurtado Bronzi, who is Worried that his buddy's unit is going to be caught out in an ambush. And before he can intervene, he's stopped by an Alpha Legion agent. An Alpha Legion agent who tells him not to do anything hasty. And there's there's a really good uh, character interaction here that makes you really like Bronzy. Because this, this Alpha Legionnaire says, oh, Bronzy, I've heard of you. There's more barefaced cheek in you than half the asses in the Imperial Army. And I can't help but laugh at that. It is so funny because Bronzy's just this like paunchy dude that yeah he's this uh, army veteran. I think he's like a lieutenant, a senior lieutenant or something like that. And, you know, he's not he's not a guy just blindly following orders. He's his own man, which is, again, something we don't really see in Warhammer because individuality is very often snuffed out. Anyway, before Bronzy can get his unit together and go check in on Sonica's unit, which is his buddy's name, they're caught Sonica's unit is caught out in an ambush, and then Tell Yutan just catches fire. And as it turns out, the Alpha Legion have been there for weeks setting up this operation? Yeah, that's the word for it. I don't know why that escaped me. But uh, at that point, the Alpha Legion kind of starts to show their hand as much as they want to at that point, and Admit that um, they've they admit to the imperial expedition they've been here longer than anyone knew, and that really bothers the Lord Commander because Lord Commander Nemetjira doesn't like not knowing everything, and again, it's the theme that we see in this book of control.
2: A, a really quick aside, which I think this is something that a lot of people kind of miss out on. Um, and you're not going to really pick up on it until you've read a lot of the other books, but I'm pretty sure this assault on Telyutan is the only time Astartes take to the field without their battle armor. They're described as wearing these, like, body gloves with, like, chainmail coifs, which, you know, it's a cool thing that Dan Abnett did, but I don't think this is something they've ever really explored, this idea that they would, you know, engage in combat without the power armor.
0: Yeah, and I thought that was really interesting too. And they're they're using non-standard Astartes war well, non-standard war gear, in so much that they're using the Nerf's war gear. They're using these uh, these big pole arms called fulxes instead of like chain swords or uh, bolters or power swords or just even the or the regular monomolecular edge knives that we're used to seeing.
1: Yeah, and that's it's actually a praise a big praise that i have for this book when when we hear about the alpha Legion, we hear you know okay they're spies they're infiltrators and you know stealth is a big thing to them and i think we've all you know heard the joke of the eight foot tall superhuman and two tons of power armor but he's wearing a camo cloak so he's stealthy i think that they that Dan Abnett really did a great job in this book of showing how a stealth and infiltration would work with space Marines. Um, and I don't, I do not think that that was a small task to accomplish. Uh, but that's one of my highest praises for this book is I absolutely believed that this is how it could work.
0: Yeah. It's um, it's a pretty great scene in the book too, because um, we've gotten into a Sonica a little bit at this point point. And uh, thankfully, well, he survives, so the rest of the story can happen. But um, he makes it out with some injuries, and he winds up in uh, another location later on in the book. But his buddy Bronzy is pretty upset at this, so when he makes it back to base, he corners this Alpha Legion agent at gunpoint, and uh, you know starts to question him, like, um, you know, did you hang them out to dry? And the Alpha Legion at this, it, you know, says no. We did that on purpose. You know, it, it was calculated. We we needed that unit out there to draw the the team out so that we could ambush them and counter their city defenses. And before Bronzy can, you know, take revenge or do anything about it, this, you know, quick as a whip space marine knocks the gun out of his hand and pins him up against the wall. And uh, that's kind of the end of that character interaction. But we get the sense that... Um, There's a lot more going on here with the Alpha Legion that they're willing to, you know, sacrifice a fair portion of regular human life in order to execute their goals. And it's this this sheer pragmatism that is another theme of the Legion that um, that shows up later on in the book.
1: Yeah. And I think another thing that we see here is, you know, the 600 it's it's made very, very clear that the 670th expedition doesn't have their own detachment of a legion and it, it's it's pretty obvious that none of these guys even the lord commander really understands what they're dealing with in in these space marines and a Primarch. um they i mean they they mouth off to these guys and i'm like these guys could smash you in a heartbeat
0: right so i think that's important to talk about because uh lord commander Nemetjira has some dialogue in the book where he says i can't help but Wish that it was a different Legion helping us. Any other legion is more noble than the Alpha Legion. And apparently Nemetjira is on a first name basi- basis with my boy Rabut Giliman. Because in a conversation with Giliman, Nemetjira says that Giliman himself despises the Alpha Legion for their just lack of battlefield doctrine and that everything they do requires ten extra steps and all this subversion to accomplish what Gilman sees as the same goal.
2: I was going to say, too, even beyond just, like, their view of the Legion as a whole, they don't even seem to know a lot about Astartes in general. When Bronzy first sees the specialist uh, at the beginning of the book, he's like, okay, well, he's larger than a gene build. He could be Astartes, but I've never seen one, so I'm not even sure what this guy is. And it's not until he starts interacting with them that he's like, oh, shit, these guys are Astartes. And, like, even when he goes after... Um, the Alpha Legion guy, like, he puts the gun on him and is basically like, well, I had to bring a gun because I don't think I'd get any answers otherwise. Like, he doesn't realize that, like, that gun's not going to do anything for him. And, like, I think it describes it as, like, Bronzy, like, lowers the barrel slightly and then it's just gone out of his hands and he doesn't even know what's happened kind of thing. So, yeah, they just clearly have zero experience dealing with the Legions.
0: Right. So after that, we get there's a kind of cutaway of Sonica recovering at this um, kind of offsite location where a lot of other wounded army troopers are recovering. And uh, it's important to talk about this because Sonica starts having dreams. And so does one of his buddies there that uh, his buddy starts singing this song that he he doesn't know where it comes from, but he's he's hearing it in his dream. And Sonica says, my mother used to sing me that song. And this is important to the the overall kind of spy versus spy theme or the, the, um, the long-term planning that goes over in this book. Because as we find out, a lot of the events taking place in this book have been in motion for decades. Uh, I think we... We find out later on that um, Sonica has been basically manipulated the the majority of his life in so much that um, his mother used to sing him this lullaby. After that, Bronzi shows up to check on him. He's got like a a pass or something, I think. But um, the station medic, I think, is doing an autopsy on a body of one of Sonica's men. And Sonica doesn't recognize him and that's troublesome. So they think that this body is the body of an infiltrator that was picked up before it could be recovered by the infiltrator's faction or whatever. And they call into their superiors. They use all the right um, passcodes and everything. They're on an encrypted Vox line. And they talk to one of the, um, one of their commanders, Honan Mu. And she says, all right, we're going to send somebody to recover the body, meet us at this location. So Bronzy, uh, one of these other guys, uh, the guy that's singing the lullaby, go to meet up at this rendezvous, but when they get there, it kind of goes awry because it's not the uh, army there to pick it up to do a a more thorough autopsy. They They wanted to get it up to the fleet medics to check it out more thoroughly. Instead of it being regular army there to pick it up, it's the Alpha Legion. So again, we get this sense that the Alpha Legion is in a lot deeper than anyone ever expected. At first, we thought they were infiltrating just the Nirthine, but as it turns out, they have agents installed in the Imperial Army, and that's very distressing. And then after that, we're not sure what happens to Bronzy.
2: Yeah, I think uh, it's important to note that the confusion over a Nirthine infiltrator comes from the fact that the guy has this reptilian brand on his leg, which the Nirthine up until this point have been introduced as having an almost kind of like a ancient Egypt sort of aesthetic, a lot of like Nile iconography, like crocodiles and stuff are incorporated. So when they see this brand, they think, oh, nerthing," but you know, what it actually is, is, you know, Alpha Legion Hydra iconography. Yeah, I think it's, it. you don't know it at this point in the book, but of course later you find out that the Alpha Legion were the ones who set up all this stuff and basically intercepted the coded transmissions to get it all moving in their direction.
0: And that causes a little bit of a hiccup later on in the book, because when Bronzy makes it back to the regular army, he goes to ask Conan Moo about it. And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And that's when it all starts to snap into place for Bronzy that, Oh wait, no, it was Sonica. Sonica Sonica makes it back. And he's like, you know, uh, I sent Bronzy off with the body and he never got back to me. What happened to him? And Conan Moo's like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I haven't heard from Bronzy in a while either. And that's that's where it starts to click into place with Sonica. And then eventually he runs across Bronzy again, who has to take him to this secure location. And again, we find out that um, the Alpha Legion has infiltrators in basically every unit because they meet up with an Ultramar who is, he's got the Alpha Legion brand on him as well. And then we find out that, after Bronzy had his run with the Alpha Legionnaire, he was recruited as well and also has the brand. so at that point, basically, Sonica is given the choice like you either join up or this is the end of the line. And Sonica is almost a straight up and down character. He doesn't really want to do this. But I think he he kind of comes to the conclusion that like, I, I've got to do all that I can for the Imperium almost. So he he joins up. He takes the brand as well.
2: Something I think that's interesting to note here, and we haven't really discussed it yet, is the I am Alfarious" thing. So uh, for anybody who hasn't read the book, who's listening to us, uh, go read the book first. But either way, the Alpha Legion have this thing where they view names as a potential issue that their enemies could use against them. So they present a united face by saying they're all Alfarious. And so what you get throughout the book is multiple Astartes characters introducing themselves as Alpharius that you find out later were other characters. I think there's five separate Astartes that are named, although only like two of them are very important. Uh, One thing that I think is interesting is that, uh, Alpharius is here at the Sonica recruitment scene. It's also implied that it was Alphari- the real Alpharius who was the specialist the Bronzy was talking to. So something to note is every character that gets introduced into the Legion It's Alpharius, the actual Alpharius, who is there doing the recruitment and screening. Uh, Anytime they're just interacting with other people, it's another Legionnaire or or Omegon pretending to be Alpharius. But if it comes to the actual induction to the Legion, it's Alpharius kind of like running the forefront on that.
0: Right. So after Tellutan gets sacked, there's this big welcoming party, because the, the Astartes have now exposed themselves, there's this big grand welcoming thrown by the Lord Commander, where Lord Commander Nemetjira Jira welcomes the Alpha Legion to the planet. And we're led to believe that it's Altharius greeting the Lord Commander, which, yeah, it, you would think that a Primarch would meet the Lord Commander. As we find out later on, it's just, a, it's one of their captains. I think it was the second captain.
2: Uh, it's actually Omegon, is, uh, Playing Alfarius, and then they have Omegon, who's being played by another Astartes.
0: Right, so that's where it's it gets confusing because it's not just it's they're not just pretending to be Alfarius; they're also pretending to be Omegon sometimes, and so it's they're playing this shell game almost with the Primarch, and they get away with this because um, that they, as we find out later on, they're kind of tailoring individual Marines to m- to look more like the Primarch. And then I think there's also some lore out there where Alpharius was said to be shorter than the rest of the Primarchs, and Alpha Legionnaires were said to be taller than normal Astartes. The Primarch is able to blend in with the Legion almost seamlessly.
2: So with that party with Namat Jira, I think it, to really illustrate this, they talk about um, both John Grammaticus and the Lucifer Black guy, Dynas Chain, talk about how like they under scrutiny... The similarities between the Legionnaires is easy to pick apart, but in like a passing glance or like a quick conversation with somebody who doesn't know what they're looking for, they look identical.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important we need to talk about who is John Grammaticus.
2: Right. So we are
0: introduced to uh, an intelligence officer, John Grammaticus, who is working under an alias at the time as being this kind of spy infiltrator working for the Imperial Army. Who is able to infiltrate the the Nerthene cities. And so we get this um we get this scene with him where he's giving this briefing briefing to a one of some of the intel other intelligence officers, uh, the Uxors of the Chiliad. And the way Roxanna. the Chiliad Yeah, Roxana, and the Chiliads work differently in that they're all gene-bred, and then instead of having like a normal command structure of officers they actually have these these psychic officers that have in yeah, like a bunch of psychic interns that relay commands and use it to adjust troop formations well john is giving this briefing and we get the sense that Right away, you know he's pretty. The, the character is written in a way that, like, we know he's an infiltrator. He's got. Uh, we pick up that very early on that he's a psychic. He's a very unique kind of psychic in that he's a logo kind, which he can instantly learn and pick up any language, and then he can also kind of reach out with his mind to see what people are thinking and feel. And he uses that to his advantage to manipulate people. And we see that a little bit with Roxana, or so we think, where that um, you know he kind of uses her as cover as his as his cover starts to break she kind of runs interference for him so that he can still perform his mission and as let's see how do we want to go about this um as john is on mission in Monlo harbor he starts to get this kind of psychic interference that drives him away from his goal right into the clutches of the alpha legion so the alpha legion is like we know that you've been looking for us We wanted to get to you first. And again, it really reaffirms that theme of control where the Alpha Legion has to know everything. They have to do everything. They have to, you know, be in control.
2: Before we get into that, I think we need to talk about the Cabal because that's kind of the whole reason he's there. So Grammaticus kind of like Warwick was saying, is an infiltrator, but he's not a earthy infiltrator. He's actually with a different organization that the book calls the Cabal. So the Cabal are this coalition force, this confederacy of various alien races that have been operating in the greater galaxy for tens of thousands of years. Basically, they've uh, read the first six books in the series and they know exactly what's about to go down, and so they're trying to set up a way to stop Horus and his fall to chaos. In order to do this, they've sent John to this planet and lured the Alpha Legion there as a way to set up a meeting, which is what we're about to talk about. So that was the context for that. There,
0: thank you for that. I get ahead of myself. So we we now know that basically what happens in this interaction with John and the Alpha Legion. The, the Alpha Legion has their own psycho that's basically able to counter John for a while while the Alpha Legion tries to talk to him. Now John makes it very clear from the start that the Cabal has been trying to contact the Alpha Legion because they want to set up a meeting. The Alpha Legion, however, don't trust any of this because they're incredibly paranoid. And again, if anything seems to be out. Of their control. They shut it down immediately. Now, eventually it comes out that um, John lets it slip that uh, the Alpha Legion agents basically shut down his own psychic presence to lure him there. When the Alpha Legion Psyker says that wasn't us. And then the penny drops where there's another force out there that interfere with both of them to expose both of them. And then everything just goes to hell in a handbasket. The Alpha Legion has to pull out of Monlo Harbor at that point. And then uh, John gets lost in the mix and has to flee the scene as well.
1: Yeah. That's a, uh, that's actually a criticism I have of this book is this scene right here because it, completely they just completely gloss over how all of that happened like one minute they are fighting in in the city in a desperate attempt to escape and the next minute they're all just out and somehow separated and it never gets into detail about that and that's a huge criticism i have for this book where it tells and doesn't show on several there there are several instances where this happens in this book
0: i think that's a little fair Um, it doesn't really kill the book for me. Uh, I, I, just see it all is the um, just the chaos of the moment. It it is kind of cheap because like like we kind of talked about, we do get like a lot of explanation on other stuff or a lot of character building on a lot of other stuff. But this is very vague. I think a uh, something here really worth pointing out is something that John describes in the chaos is that this um, this giant red monitor lizard breaks out of the ground onto the street where they're fighting. And when John looks at it, he sees it for he says he describes it as what it really is. And it's a demon instructed to take this form. So it's it's really troubling that the Nerthemes seem to have this connection with the, the ruinous powers. But they're able to manifest it in a way tailored to their own aesthetics, so to speak. So th- this thing shows up and, and it's not just a giant monster. It's literally a demon, which it it, it feels kind of weird because we see this a lot in the, in the books we're getting the same thing we've seen from a first time perspective. We as a reader know what it is and how dire it is, but all the characters in the book are like, Oh, what is that? I've never seen that before. And it's like, is a demon figured out stupid? Anyway, And we see these creatures again, later on in the book, but they're described as these very physical beings, but we know they're not, they're actually demons. You guys pick up on that at all?
1: Yeah. Uh, I definitely did. I, I did think it was really cool how like the, the were kind of demonstrated to be in league with chaos and that it was kind of an unmoving thing. They didn't realize what they're getting in with, I guess. And my, one of my favorite lines in this book is when John infiltrates the city and there's just a guy on the street who he greets him and says, Oh, you know, the blessings of the sun be on you. And John says, okay, he thinks he said you know the greeting of the day, but what he actually said was, "May the primordial annihilator immolate your immortal soul." <laughs> so it, it, it's really interesting. Question for you two: Which entity do you think that they're associated with? The nerthine
0: I'm leaning into Zinch because it's this very subtle kind of infiltration. And Abnett talks about these in a few of his other books, where it's it's a race that is subtly involved in chaos. So. I'm. I'm
2: gonna leave with Zinch. Yeah, I was gonna say Zinch too, because along with the bird iconography, he also has a lot of reptilian iconography, and also it really fits with the theme of book of book of uh, lies and subterfuge. Which kind of on that point, the whole idea of being told not shown, I think, is kind of a major theme in the book. We'll talk about it really briefly here. I think a lot of the reasons why we're told and not shown a lot of stuff, like how this whole fight breaks out, or like how uh, another one that's going to come up is how the Cabal got the Alpha Legion to come here. I, I think a lot of it really comes down to set up sort of the infallibility of each group and how they want to be in control and are not necessarily able to. A lot of stuff that we're going to be told in the book doesn't match up with the actions that the characters are going to be taken. And that's specifically to undercut everything they're saying about themselves. So I think that's a lot of the reason as to why things play out in that weird way where it causes this disconnect is because it's made, it's supposed to make you wonder why people are making the decisions they're doing, despite what they're saying
0: right. that um that really makes a lot of sense for me. and And like I said, the the disconnect is really in character with the book itself or the story itself. So let's see. We get to John taking cover in Roxana's quarters. And at that point, the Lucifer Blacks, which we haven't talked about really yet, they are this um, this very elite unit. Oh God, how would you describe them? They're they're acting as bodyguards to the Lord Commander, and they're told to be the, they're they're described as the very best of the best. In so much that um, there's no other unit like them, and there there are very small numbers of them, and they're. Just these elite bodyguards. We get this character Dennis Chain, who is the.
1: Uh, just to be clear on how elite they are, these guys guarded the emperor at one point, so uh, they're they're a pretty big deal.
0: Right. So during the um, the dinner between Alfarius and uh, Namajira, John is back trying to do some recon, listen into this. But while he is back doing so, he uh, gets caught by one of the Lucifer Blacks. And while the Lucifer Black is armored and armed, John is unarmored and unarmed. But we find out that John is somehow post-human himself because he's able to kill one of these guys with his bare hands. And Amnit does a really good job writing this fight scene. Because even though the Lucifer Black is, John immediately punches him in the side of the head and breaks his comms. And then before he can yell for help, John punches him in the throat and breaks his trachea so he can't scream for help. Now John disables this guy. It's a very dire fight scene. It's written very well. And he's able to pick up on a little bit of the dialogue between Alpharius and the Lord Commander. And what John picks up on is that Alpharius is explaining to the Lord Commander that somehow the Neratheme are manipulating the power of chaos. And John is like, that is such a childish way to describe the primordial annihilator. And it's like this, it's this very like, kind of elementary take on um, the the powers of chaos and and all that. And before we get much of that, so John is is brought to awareness that the Alpha Legion knows what chaos is.
2: Yeah, so they know what chaos is. I I think there's two interesting things about this meeting. Uh, The first is, so John, like, writes off the Alpha Legion as this childish notion of chaos, but then he gets into the fight with the Lucifer Black and takes off. And it's after that that we go back to the tent and we hear Alpharius go more into detail about chaos, and what he's saying is actually much more in line with what John was talking about earlier when he was describing it. So clearly the Alpha Legion know a lot more about chaos, than even he recognizes, but he's dealing with, you know, less information at this point. Another thing that I think is very important to note is that uh, for, you know, everyone who's been reading along in the books, this takes place before Ulanor and before Davin. So this is before, you know, Horace has really kicked off anything. And what we've seen in the other books is that a lot of the other legions have no idea about chaos at all. Maybe the Primarchs know, but, like, none of the legionnaires do. I mean, Loken had no idea what chaos was, and he's one of the all. And yet here we are sitting in a tent ten years before the heresy, and you got, like, a captain of the Alpha Legion being like, yeah, the primordial annihilator is tough, man, but we've dealt with them before, kind of thing. So clearly, the Alpha Legion know a lot more than even the other legions do when it comes to dealing with chaos.
1: Yeah, you definitely see that uh, there's a lot more to them uh, than meets the eye, and uh, it's it's an interesting conversation. It's particularly interesting when you realize it's not Alfarious at all. <laughs> but uh, one of the one of the things that I found fascinating about this whole scene is when when this battle brother goes and finds this Lucifer Black that's been taken out by John Grammaticus. Uh, Dennis chain, the head of the companion guard is, um, walking out there with him and he's taking care to avoid all tripping, all of these ground sensors and all this stuff. And it's talked about in the fight scene, how that, that one companion was trying desperately to trip a ground sensor. And he notices that this Astartes is just walking through them and they're not triggering, um, which never really gets talked about again, but I thought it was really cool and an interesting thing that I was hoping was going to get elaborated
0: on more. And then we never saw it. And Dennis Chain is like, how are you doing that? And this Alpha Legionnaire is just like, please, we're not amateurs. So it's like, what what other Imperial security is the Alpha Legion just walking through? And for that point, are they still getting away with it in 40k? Who knows? Yeah, it's
1: definitely it's definitely interesting to, to think about. All right, what, uh, what are we moving to next here? Um, we've had the... C- the meeting with the the Lord Commander. So I guess the the next thing is really uh
2: Yeah, now we get into the kerfuffle, the confusing middle part of the book where everyone's tripping over each other.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, everybody's hunting everybody and nobody actually knows what they're looking for.
0: Right. So the the Geno five two Chiliad is So everyone basically in the story is made aware that there's an infiltrator somewhere in the Imperial Army. And so the Chiliad has their own gene whips out looking for... Gene whips are like political officers or commissars looking for the traitor, They're trying to purge their own ranks. Um, The Lucifer Blacks are hot on the trail of Grammaticus because they think he's the spy. Well, he kind of is. The Alpha Legion are still trying to catch Grammaticus as well, but no one really knows who Grammaticus is. Like if, if he's not using the cover of like another one of the Chiliad members, which is basically what everyone thinks at this point, they think it's like at one point they think it's bronzy at one point they think it's Sonica at one point grammaticus uses the identity of another Hetman that's um, pretending to be in bed with Roxana, which he kind of is kind of isn't. So it really turns into this mixer of spy versus spy. And it's, it's like the scene where everybody's got the guns pointed at one another, but no one's willing to pull the trigger first it it gets crazy for a minute and then uh before tensions really ramp up in this scene but before anything can come of it this big counteroffensive is launched by the Nertheme and you know Bronzy's caught out in the open and, you know his whole unit almost gets sacked and um it 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 all takes off in this really weird way.
1: Well, and and we should also mention like this uh, in the in this middle part, uh, the Alpha Legion ends up capturing Roxana because they're trying to get to John. The Loose for Blacks exonerate both Sonica and Bronzy, saying there's no way these guys could be spies and they actually are spies. And John Grammaticus is kind of just running around like a chicken with his head cut off at this point. Um, it's not a great part for him, uh, but he does get approached by the Cabal, who have actually come to the planet to let uh, to let him know that uh, these the Nerthine have what is what we now is known is referred to as a black box, which is functionally a planet-destroying
2: weapon. Just a, a weird aside, did you guys listen to the audiobook for this time, or did you read the book? Audiobook audiobook yeah what do you guys think of the voice acting specifically for the cabal guys i didn't mind slo so much but the little translator thing really bothered me for some reason
0: i i thought it was fine um i i really liked his all the human characterizations i thought they were all great
2: yeah the human ones weren't bad
0: if any one of them was was bad it was probably the translator like you said but <laughs> all all the rest were fantastic
2: yeah I loved it. I can't even put my finger on it, really. I think it was just it, it felt too like nineteen fifties cheesy sci fi. It has been far seen, and I was like, Bleh.
0: <laughs> I know, I loved it. I I thought it was all fine.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: um, I I did. I actually liked uh, how he did the the Eldar Altar because I was like, wow. This guy sounds like a douchey Eldar Altark who's way too full of himself.
0: Monkey! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I thought the voice acting was pretty great. I liked, um, he kind of reminded me of, who's the guy that plays um, uh, Professor Slughorn from Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince? You guys know what I'm talking about?
2: Uh,
0: (laughs) jolly old British dude. Oh, yeah,
2: no, I can't remember.
0: John has this, he is now cut and run from the Lucifer Blacks, he's very on the outs. Um, he's we find out that he's installed several bolt holes out in the, the desert waste so that he can fall back, and he's got like other, I like he's got stashed identities basically so that he can pretend to be anybody and get picked up by a rescue ship, but they won't catch him as the spy. But while he's out in the desert, he's like, we're just going to have to cancel this operation. There's no dealing with the Alpha Legion. We just need to try a different Legion. And before he can get away, he's interrupted. Like The the Cabal has this way of communicating through pools of water called Flecting. He gets interrupted by this uh, Eldar Altaq, Sloudaw, and he's like, You can't give up on this operation. We've tried all the other legions. The Alpha Legion is the only one that is not depleted. And so we get the sense that through the course of the Crusade, all the older legions have been stressed due to over recruiting. Their gene codes have all started to kind of deteriorate in a way. But the Alpha Legion is still young enough. And I wanted to, I had some commentary on this, I want to get you, pick your guys' brains on. The Alpha Legion is young enough and still kind of virgin enough almost that they can be trusted. They have not been influenced by chaos yet. And so I got to thinking about that where, so the Alpha Legion are the 20th Legion. So if, you know, if assuming that the Emperor did it in numerical order, he wasn't just cherry picking these to do first, or let's call these done enough. If the Alpha Legion were done last, doesn't that kind of tell you that they're kind of, Um, enhancement formula is refined more so than other legions. And what I want to get at is we know that um, like with the word bearers and like with the first legion, there are a lot of demi astartes in those legions. So they're not, they haven't received gene seed yet. And basically what we gather is that no one like at a certain age or higher should receive gene seed because it'll basically just kill them. So what I'm kind of curious about is the Alpha Legion is always recruiting these human agents and bringing them aboard their standard Astartes vessels. Like, are they being recruited to become Alpha Legionnaires? And they're able to do that because their enhancement process is more refined than anyone else? So what we're actually seeing are like more more mature people taken for the enhancement process. What did you guys Did you guys pick up in, on that at all? Cuz that's kind of what I gathered.
2: Yeah, I don't think that's the case because you get characters like Shear who's been with the Legion for a long time but has not, you know, been raised to a Stardies level. He's just there as an agent. Um, and I don't think it's ever really implied to either Bronzy or Sonica like, "Hey kid, you do your job right, we'll raise you up." No, it's just they've been recruited for their talents as a baseline human to serve the Legion. I don't think there was ever the concept that they would get a modification.
1: Yeah, I didn't pick that up either. I I more so picked up that they keep all of these humans around because they're really useful. And when they need to conduct operations where, you know, an eight-foot-tall dude in power armor is not exactly subtle... Um, This is the way that they did it. Yeah. Um, So I never really really got that impression that they were recruiting through these operatives. Things I did find interesting about the operatives was the level of access that the operatives get to networks and the ships and stuff like that. That I found it very interesting.
2: Yeah, they go straight to top secret right from the get-go. Although it it does seem like they do have a bit of a leash. The Astartes clearly keep a very close eye on both Sonica and Bronzy, even though they're new recruits with all this access. They're still monitored pretty closely.
1: Yeah, which, I mean, isn't that surprising. We know that this Legion likes to be in control of everything all the time, so I'm not really... That uh, that doesn't shock me at all. That's kind of what I would expect
2: from them. I think, kind of going back to Warwick's point, I think when they were talking about the Alpha Legion have to be the ones because they're the least corrupt, I don't think they're referring to Gene Seed specifically. I think it's because they're the newest formed Legion, they've had the least amount of time to really indoctrinate themselves with the Imperium, right? Because you go to Horus to be like, hey, you're going to turn to Chaos. He's going to say Xenos filth and shoot you in the face. Right, But you go to the Alpha Legion, they're going to say, well, you're Zeno's filth and we're going to shoot you in the face, but we'll hear you out first. <laughs> and I think that's really the angle they were going for with uh, why the Alpha Legion had to be chosen. They were the most likely to even give them the time of day where all the other legions who've been crusading for you know upwards of a 100 years, well, upwards of a decade, have been basically drinking the kool-aid of the imperium for too long
0: well i guess that's just uh, abstract thinking on my part maybe but no that's uh that all everything you guys said makes sense too so yeah that's pretty interesting so what we find out in this little interaction with sloudal and john is that sloudal is not just flecting in the water he is actually there and that Abnet writes that in a super cinematic way that i really love like John is pissed and he's like, you know, the Cabal just can't keep flecking in and tell me, telling you what to do. And then he spits at Slado's feet and then the ripples break on his greaves. And it, it, at that point, John is like, Oh fuck, he's here. And Slado picks him up by the neck and he's like, you have to do this monkey. And they, they did that very specifically to impress to John that this is a dire matter now, because as we've just found out the nerf are in possession of a black cube which we find out is this kind of primordial weapon that um, John refers to it as a weapon used in the, you know, in, in an ancient clash between the, the first races, which that refers to the old ones uh, when the old ones were fighting the demons and the Necrons or the Necron tier at that point. So it's, it's really interesting to hear about the, the origins of this device. And there's said to only be like four or five left in existence. The rest have been hunted out and
2: destroyed. Uh, I was going to say real quick before we move on, I think an important thing to take away from this scene is John gets into it with Slau Da about how the Cabal views humanity and how they very clearly hold zero regard for humans. They view them as, I think Slau Da calls them, uh, what was it, like an evolutionary you know, anomaly. Like, like something. A mistake. Yeah, a mistake. He
0: refers to them as afterbirth at one point.
2: Yeah. Like, it's clear that the Cabal do not view humanity as worth anything, which John Grammaticus kind of rails against a little bit. But.
0: Right, well, yeah. I mean, like, how would you feel if you're basically being told you're all a bunch of worthless monkeys?
2: Yeah, space you know, racists.
0: Hur- just hurry up and die already so that we can save the rest of the galaxy. But yeah. It's not exactly an appetizing <laughs> fate to be... To to be told, it's like, you basically all need to kill yourselves so that the rest of us can live. Why the fuck would anybody want to agree with that right away?
2: I I think it's something interesting to keep in mind, especially when we get to the end. But uh, yeah, just something that we need to keep in mind is how the Cabal views humanity and how that's going to color everything they do.
0: Another interesting bit about John that I forgot to mention is that we find out that uh, he's about a thousand years old. And he's existed in this way because he was on Earth during the Unification Wars and actually shook hands with the Emperor at one point. But And the, the Emperor immediately recognized that John was a powerful psychic, and he's like, you know, later on, John, we need to have a discussion about um, about your special mind. There's definitely a place for people like us in the future. And that that's really interesting because the Emperor is like... Uh, it kind of shows that he's he's willing to deal with these these very unique people. Uh, anyway, there's there's also John talking about how uh, he he was able to kind of get this feeling from the emperor's mind about the magnitude of his intellect or his the the kind of feeling of his mind and how bloodthirsty the guy is. And the cabal was like, you know, we wanted to recruit him, we just didn't think we'd ever have a way in and John was like you wouldn't say that if you knew how much of a bloodthirsty son of a bitch he really was which i thought was some really interesting dialogue but um, you know John is is uh, you know after he rails against Slada a little bit kind of fights back he's brought around he's like i don't really have a choice i have to go you know see this mission through so he makes his way back to imperial lines meanwhile the the nerthine counterattack takes off and it's headed by this this wave of psychic or almost magical energy that radiates from Monlo Harbor and slams into all the Imperial fortifications. Basically, knocks several units flat. Bronzy's unit sees it coming and is able to mobil- mobilize against it. And he's From the very start, he's like, we're probably going to die here, but you idiots are going to find out how bad a Geno Chiliad can maul you. Which is some like really chad shit to say when you're staring down the barrel of a gun, and we get to see all the different imperial units mobilize at this point and how they operate. And the chiliad doesn't function as we've said in the same way that a lot of the imperial units thus far have functioned. In that they're not just guys with las guns; they've got las guns, but they also have like these big energy pikes, so they're able to make this big barricade that the enemy cavalry breaks itself upon. And then, you know, Bronzy's got like uh, several, like, he's got a couple of custom pistols. One of them is like a big pepper pot that he makes uh, custom loads for. And he's like just blowing off the heads of these giant uh, monitor lizards coming in. And we also get to see that the, the Nerthian army is mobilizing in a way that we haven't seen yet either. In that instead of regular ground infantry spearheaded by elites, they've got these giant like Cayman crocodiles with howdahs on the backs with uh, um, cavalry stationed on those and they're charging the Imperial lines. And we hadn't seen that yet. It's it's very disturbing. And before, uh, you know, the Chiliads hold out just long enough for the Titans and the armored cavalry to mobilize behind Imperial lines and sweep in to save the day.
2: I think uh, another thing too is something that Bronzi mentions is this isn't like the normal nerthing fighting force. Like this is... This is everything. Like they've brought, they've armed the civilians, and they're just everybody is making a mad dash for the imperial lines through this cloud. Like this is the final fight,
0: right? And that's that's pretty concerning because the Imperium was led to believe that this was going to be a siege for a long time. Eventually, we'll we'll wait them out, starve them out, whatever. No one ever expected them to perform a counter assault. And Lord Commander Nemetjira Jira says that he's like. You know, we're rediscovering warfare right now. We never expected them to do this. And it, it really, you've heard the, the saying that like a, a cornered animal is the most dangerous. And that's exactly what they find out. Well, during all the fighting, Sonica is approached by another Hetman, w- which they're, refer- they're referred to as Hetman, but they're senior officers, they're lieutenants or whatever. Sonica is pulled aside and it turns out to be Chromaticus. Which um, I think Sonica had like one run in with him at this point. So he kind of knows that he's this weird agent that the Alpha Legion wants to get their hands on. And John is just like, look, I'm turning myself in. You have to take me to the Alpha Legion. And We know that Sonica has been recruited. So Sonica gets on a secure line, puts together a rendezvous. And the Alpha Legion says, you have to abandon your post and bring Grammaticus to us. There's no other choice at this point. It's too important, and Sonica's is like, I can't just give up all this now. But they eventually say you have to do it, and so he goes along with it. And when he gets there, the Off Legion says, "Look, there's no going back at this point. You're already exposed. The Lucifer Blacks were on your tail for a while. The Gene Whips wanted a piece of you too. You're gonna have to come with us." And we we find out that well, we know that at this point in the story that Roxana had been captured or been taken in by the Alpha Legion as well. Not really sure what happened to her. And then we know that Bronzy's stuck in the thick of it, holding the line. And the scene kind of goes black from there. We're not really sure, you know, after the Alpha Legion take in Grammaticus and Sonica, what really happens. But we do see the end of the fight, basically, where the Nertheem are broken. And it then comes back to the scene with Grammaticus and Sonica and the Alpha Legion saying...
2: Well, so real quick. So John Grammaticus gets taken by the Alpha Legion, warns them of the Black Cube, and what follows is a mad dash off the planet where everyone's trying to get out of system before this thing goes off and destroys everything.
0: Right. And I wanted to talk about that scene because Grammaticus also notices a shocking similarity between Altharius and Omegon, who is the captain of the stealth company.
2: Yeah, which... I think that draws parallels back to the tent scene again. That's going to be coming up a lot because at that point it was Omegon pretending to be Alpharius. And that's the first time that I think John sees an Alpha Legion guy without his helmet. And so he thinks Omegon is Alfarious. And then in this scene, he meets the real Alpharius and is like, you're lying to me. You're not Alfarious Cause that guy over there is Alpharius. And they're like, are you sure about that? John,
0: Right, they kind of mess with him a little bit. Yeah, it's pretty funny.
2: So following the Mad Dash, we
0: find out that Namat Jira doesn't want to give up any ground because it's kind of like, not to get too real real worldy here yet, but it's like the Battle of Saigon, where the Viet Cong basically broke themselves in the last assault on Saigon, and then if not for Western propaganda, we just had to hold our ground a little longer, and it would have been a totally different outcome to the war. Anyway, Nemetira doesn't want to give ground here, even though Alfarius is in his ear the whole time saying it's like the Nertheme are deploying a super weapon, we have to leave. And it's not until like um, a day or so later when this kind of this impenetrable fog rolls in across the planet and it starts to strike people dead, it starts to destroy machinery, and it's completely indefinable, and it defies any explanation. So at that point, Namat like, okay, shit, I've made a mistake. we got to get out of here. But in the Mad Dash to get off the planet, there are units left behind because they couldn't locate a landing zone. There are six Titans left behind because there were no heavy lifters for them. The logistics of pulling a whole expeditionary fleet off the planet were insane. And it it almost didn't happen. So the Titan Legion actually departs right there because losing six Titans like that is unacceptable. And Nemet Jira is basically disgraced at this point saying in the the Titan Legion is saying, don't ever expect support from Mechanicum again. And then, you know, so many... Army units are lost since the expeditionary fleet is knocked down to about half strength because of this. Now, they're able to reconstitute forces to about maybe two thirds the original strength later on in the story. But as we find out, John wants to put together this rendezvous on what is it, 42 Hydra Tertius or something like that. And It's like a really bad joke. And even John is like, okay, maybe that was in poor taste because the Alpha Legion has this Hydra iconography. So John being facetious and arrogant as he is puts together this rendezvous on this planet or the system named Hydra.
2: So it's actually the Cabal that does it. And they did it specifically because they're like, oh, the planet's name matches their iconography. This will make them feel more comfortable. And John is the one to be like, all right, look, I, I know that that was a misstep, but just roll with me here. You need to meet the Cabal. I promise it'll be worth it.
0: Right. So Alfarius will not just consent to going down to the planet and meeting the Cabal. He mobilizes an entire war footing on this planet. And the planet itself is really weird because it's it's uninhabitable except for this one anomaly that is a acceptable human atmosphere. And it's, you know, like I said, the entire planet is uninhabitable except for this one spot. And so the Alpha Legion is really wary of that because they're like, that's a really weird thing to see on an entire planet, you know, on, on this world. Why is that happening? And John basically has to admit that, yeah, we've been terraforming this area for about 10 years now trying to get you here this is where we need to um, perform the meeting i'll go john is like i'll go with you i'm your shibboleth i open the way and the alpha legion is alpharius is just like no way that's going to happen no way we're going to let you do that so they'll lock him up again and meanwhile sonica is um he's on board the flagship And he's kind of running guard duty for Grammaticus because as we've said, Sonica is an agent now. And so he's basically taking Grammaticus' lunches, talking to him, basically trying to befriend him almost this entire time. But as we find out, Grammaticus is so distressed by not being taken along to this um, summit that he is trying to use psychic powers to manipulate Sonica. And it seems to be working. So, during the the land and hold maneuver, Sonica shows up at Gramaticus's cell and lets him go and says, I'm going to get you down there. We have to see this through.
2: Yeah, so uh, it's kind of hinted, like you were saying, that uh, over the like couple months period that uh, Grammaticus has been in the cell, he's been using his abilities to basically turn Sonica into a sleeper agent, you know, uh, he needs to say the code word and then he's able to get out of there. Um, and so at this point, Sonica shows up, and you think that that's paid off because Grammaticus is like saying the code words and activating him. And basically, like, all right, you got to get me off this ship because if I'm not on that planet, the Cabal's not going to show up. Um, and so they do this mad dash through. They end up finding Roxana and rescuing her, and she's, you know, uh, this tortured wreck. And John is, you know, throughout the book has talked about how he feels very regretful that Roxana got tied up in all of this because of him and how he actually cares about her. So he's like thrilled that he's found her um, and they end up uh, stealing. I think they steal a drop pod, don't they? And they just jump off ship.
1: Yeah, it's a hell of a way to escape a ship. <laughs> yeah. Regular non-modified humans jumping in a drop pod. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I love the call out to the Manchurian candidate.
2: I guess real quick, what else did we... Oh, uh, I, I guess talking a little bit about John's meeting with Alfarius when they get to the start of the planet. I think it's interesting that when they're talking, like, John is talking about, like, yeah, we've been, like... Building this planet up for like 50,000 years. We've been terraforming it for like 10 just to get you guys here. And like Alpharius even has a moment where he's like, Wait, the Cabal's been around for like 50,000 years. And John's like, Oh no, they've been around for even longer than that. Like, don't worry about it, kind of thing. (laughs) It's clear that the Cabal have been in operation for basically as long as you know, anybody really knows, which I think is interesting. They've been fighting chaos for that long functionally.
0: Yeah. And we, uh, we found out by now that the cabal is made up of several different races. So there are Eldar, there are other kind of loosely defined aliens. Like one of there are some that are just like they're sentient dust modes basically, that communicate psychically. and
2: So actually on that one, did you guys pick up on the fact that those are Satans? No. Giant energy cloud beings that feed off of suns?
0: Okay, so I did hear that, but I thought that all the satan were basically either destroyed or captured by the Necro. So I didn't think any could exist outside of that context.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's always been a little vague, but like that description of that particular Zenos race is the exact same old description of the Satans before they were giving the living, before they were given the living metal bodies. I thought that was an interesting little thing of like, wait a minute, there's like Satan guys hanging around here. Yeah,
0: So like, I, like I said, I did pick up on that, but I, I guess I didn't put the two and two together. I didn't want to maybe.
1: It, it would make sense. I mean, the this- the Catan are old as hell.
0: They yeah, they were on the same playing field as the old ones, and the uh, there are also watchers there, and we saw watchers in the, the previous book, Descent of Angels. They show up on Caliban, so it's it's definitely kind of this big cultural melting pot, and we see that kind of culminate in the ship that appears, of all these different races basically putting their heads together to to build this kind of indefinable uh, well. Cabal.
2: Yeah, I, I think we kind of put the cart before the horse there. We should probably explain getting to the meeting before we describe the meeting. Right,
0: <laughs> right, right. So, John, Roxana, and Sonica all make it down to the surface and they make it to the meeting place. And John is like, okay, something is supposed to happen. I, I'm going to open the way now. And as he does so, the entirety of the Cabal shows up. They So, the Cabal show up, and John is like, okay, now we just need to get the Alpha Legion here. And before he can say anything, Sonica is pointing a Laz pistol at the Cabal. And then Roxana, who we think is kind of this brain dead wreck at this point, pulls out like a teleport beacon. And the entirety of like a a shit, like a company of Alpha Legionnaires teleport into this cave. And now they have the entire Cabal at gunpoint. And again, like the Alpha Legion they've got to be in control so they have they've been playing everybody since the start into this situation because they were never going to just acquiesce to okay we want to have a meeting now we'll show up it doesn't really work like that with them so it is kind of this very tense scene of like the cabal doesn't want to doesn't want to yield the alpha legion aren't going to yield but they've got the guns so alfarius is like look you can either tell us or you can die and the, uh, the interpolator says, look, we'll share our message that there's like this psychic communication going on with the entirety of the Cabal. And they're speaking through this translator. Now the translator says, okay, we will communicate with the Primarch and only the Primarch. And Alfarius says, you are. And that's when the Cabal says the entire Primarch. And there's kind of this awkward pause where Omegon steps forward and says, you are. And at that exact point, we find out that it is one soul that's described as one soul inhabiting inhabiting two bodies. So Alpharius and Omegon are the exact same person. They are the Primarch, and it's it, Grammaticus says, "Unique amongst the uh, the sons of the Emperor, you are unique in that there's two of you." So it's it's this big revolution or revelation at the uh, the the uh, near the end of the book where there's kind of this, well, like you said, uh, as we already know, the multiple heads of the Hydra, basically.
2: Yeah, an interesting reveal. And it's unclear before this point who knew and who didn't. Uh, It seems, obviously, Alpharius and Omega knew. It seems like most of the Legionaries knew, but the Agents clearly were kept in the dark about that information, because... Both Sonica, well, I don't think Roxanne really says anything about it, but Sonica specifically it was like blown away by the revelation.
0: Right. So it comes to a point where the Cabal and the Alpha Legion agree to have this, this um, be exposed to what they call the acuity, or the, you know, the to do the far seeing as the Eldar call it. The acuity is kind of this culmination of psychic far seeing or psychic fortune telling, basically on what's gonna happen with the galaxy. So there's this big ex, uh, Imperial expeditionary fleet high in orbit, and it's it's all standard army vessels or naval ships and one Astartes battle barge, which we know is the Beta or the Beta. And while they're in orbit doing like kind of a picket of the, the, the high orbit anchor, this giant flying saucer shows up and blows right past the Imperial fleet. And it moves so fast that nothing can get a target lock, and as it goes by, it shuts down all the Imperial's sensors. So they can't get a read on what this ship is. And like I said, that's where we we come in to see that the cabal has been is just indefinably sophisticated. They've they're super advanced. They've got the backing of multiple different alien races, all put together in this incredible vessel that the Imperium can't even get a target lock on. Now it sets down. The Alphalesian and the Cabal make their way on board and they're exposed to another one of the Cabal characters. That's like a sentient wall of light. He shows them the acuity. Now Alpharius and Omegon, they take sheer with them as a psyker perspective and they take Sonica with them as an unmodified human perspective. And they're exposed to the acuity. And Brandon, and I know had a lot to say about this because it's, it's really interesting how Alpharius and the others interpret in interpret this
1: yeah well basically what they're shown and uh, you know this is where the kind of the 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 revelation drops and you understand why you know the alpha legion chose the side with horus which is that the the cabal basically presents the the proposition to them that the only way for chaos to be completely destroyed is for all of humanity to die and it shows them Well, if the Emperor wins, he'll be mortally wounded and interred in the Golden Throne, and then there will be thousands of years of stagnation before chaos is eventually triumphant.
0: Literally 40k.
1: Yeah, which is exactly what happened. They say that if Horus wins, basically he will win, and then over the next 20-30 years, uh, humanity will just destroy itself, uh, which will cause uh, chaos to, to be extinguished forever. Now... My big gripe with this this whole scene here is the whole time Omegan is sitting there and he's like, "This is bullshit. This is all a lie. This is crap," and nobody confirms that it's true. And he's just all of a sudden on board. Like the, at, at no point do we get any indication that he has shifted until he just decides to, to carry out what Alfarius says. And that's really frustrating to me.
0: There is a long pause between Alpharius and Omegon where they're just staring at one another. And we get the sense that they can somehow communicate with one another. So I, maybe you missed that, but it does feel like they communicate with each other for a long time. Sonica says that, that he's just kind of left there for a while while they communicate with one another somehow. So it, it, the book doesn't do a, a great job of passage of time maybe, but it does feel like there's some kind of something going on there. And not to get into any kind of spoilers for later books, but we do see what happens. Like there are some stories later on with the Alpha Legion where we get why they're doing what they're
2: doing. Yeah, I will say this part of the book does get a little weird because talking about the acuity, talking about the Alpha Legion and their actions is going to kind of boil over into future books. So it's hard to talk about it right now without being... Really getting into the spoiler territory, but yeah, interesting idea. What are your guys' general thoughts on the Cabal and how, and their interpretation of the Acuity?
0: I think it's pretty interesting. Basically, what they say is, if the Emperor wins, chaos will fester, and if Horus wins. He will become so disgusted with himself for all that he has done, he will destroy himself and everyone with him, basically. And it's it's a pretty bleak prospect either way. That's why John's not really on board for most of it. And it's I think it's a really maybe nihilistic interpretation interpretation of it all on the cabal's behalf because the it, it seems utterly hopeless. Uh, that's that's my perspective.
1: Yeah, and nobody really also addresses the elephant in the room in this situation, which is a bunch of Xenos came up to a bunch of Imperial humans and said, hey, if you kill yourselves, it'll be great for everybody else. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's just right. never addressed. And
0: right, And that's why it's so bleak. Yeah, that's why it's so bleak. And that's why it, it's no wonder the Alpha, Alpha Legion is kind of like, I don't know about this, but. Basically, their takeaway at the end of the story is, you know, we've always been for the Emperor, we have always served the Emperor, and all that I do now will be for the Emperor. And Elfarius says, the destruction of chaos has been his greatest wish for as long as I've known him, so all that I do now, I do for him.
2: So, I, I think something to clarify real quick. In terms of the nobody questioning, I think it, it's hard for us as readers to really get the acuity But the idea of it is, is it's supposed to be like a picture perfect representation of the future. Like you are, you are seeing the actual potential futures play out in front of you. So the idea that the humans have seen that they're not going to question it because they're just going to be like, wow, that was amazing. But yeah, it is pretty crazy that the, you know, aliens show up and say, hey, you should all die. And I think it goes back to that conversation that John had with Slauda, where it's like, Clearly, the the Cabal don't hold humans in high regard. Was that because of the acuity, or was that before the acuity? And the question you kind of have to walk away with is, does humanity have to die, or does the Cabal just not like humans and want them to die? So that's the interpretation they're going with. Because the acuity itself doesn't specifically say, like, hey, this is the way that, you know, chaos dies. What they're just saying is, like, this is what the futures are holding and this is the route we've decided is the version that will lead to the one future we like.
0: I'm kind of curious if the Cabal, if the Cabal's really as old as we're made to believe, did they play any hand in the fall of the Eldar or like to prevent, like, did they try to prevent the birth of Slanesh at all? Or like, do you think they were involved like, hey, maybe the Eldar shouldn't be murdering and screwing...
1: Giving each other titty twisters.
2: I mean, it would be heavy, heavily implied that they would be. Although, I don't think there's anything in the lore specifically about that. I
0: think it's it's curious because it's like, if if the Cabal was... My, my thought process is basically, if the Cabal is this series about preventing the spread of chaos... Would they not have tried the same tactic with the Eldar and basically, hey, all the Eldar need to off themselves so they don't spawn a new effing chaos god? Well, and,
1: you know, they could have, and I just, I feel like the Eldar then looked back at them and were like, we're not going to all kill ourselves, that's stupid.
2: Basically the exact same thing that's happening here.
1: (laughs) But no, the Alpha Legion are like, that's exactly what we're going to do.
0: Well, that's, that's what the Alpha Legion says, and, you know, they, they basically leave on, quote-unquote, friendly terms with the Cabal. And on their way out, you know, Nemet Jira is, is pissed off at this point. He wanted to be on the, the ground floor of all this to, the, for, to see the acuity and to be involved in this operation to try and save face for the Nertheem deba- debacle. And, you know, he is threatening to open fire on the Alpha Legion because he thinks they've turned traitor because they're talking to aliens. Well, before they can do anything, the Alpha Legion annihilates the entire fleet with a single battle uh, battle barge at first. And then the second battle barge shows up and they pincer the fleet and it annihilates the entire expeditionary. Fleet. That's
1: one of my favorite things is when Namajir is sitting there screaming at his, uh, his fleet master to, blow up the battle barge and he's just like that's an astatis battle barge you cretin
0: yeah and then he he goes to deck at jira and then the, the companions block him he's like you will not raise your hand to the lord commander
1: there's some interesting accents in the audio <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> it's it's definitely it's it's a great way to to consume yeah. this book it's or to to uh, listen to the book. It's great. Uh,
1: but one thing we should say is um, the mission here got granted extraordinary status, which apparently you can wipe out an entire expedition fleet. And they are just like, Oh, well it was an extraordinary mission. So guess that happens.
0: Yeah. So that's basically all the alpha Legion would have to do at that point is blame the foreign ship that shut down all their sensors because it was, it was bigger than any other uh, ship on record and more advanced to the point where the Imperium didn't have any data on it. So, you know, the Alpha Legion could just say, we got out by the skin of our teeth.
2: Well, I I think it's also important to note that by this point, it's established that Horus has been to Davin and fall into chaos.
0: Horus had been Warmaster for about six months at this point, I think, because John doesn't find out that Horus is Warmaster until they're in translation.
1: Yeah, and and it actually says that, like, they, instead of coming here, most of the expedition wanted to go to 6319. So they haven't even been, like, Horus hasn't even been to murder yet by the point that this is happening. Oh, yeah, you're
0: right. I mean, yeah, the timetable's not that far off, but it, it is kind of important to say that, Horus is on track to fall to chaos, but he hasn't exactly fallen to chaos yet. It's just that Horus being named War Master is such a kind of signpost in regards to the acuity that the the Cabal knows what happens next. And there's yeah. no stopping. But I,
2: my point was Horus is well on his way to chaos. So, I mean, losing this expedition fleet and siding with the War Master, I, I'm sure Horus could have just hand-waved away the expedition is uh, lost in the warp. Who knows? That's what they tell Terra. Yeah,
1: I, I do. I think it's kind of interesting. I would love to see the the meeting between Horus and Alfarius after Horus falls to chaos and is starting to turn Pride marks. He's like, "Hey, I want you on my side." And he's like, "Oh, dude, I already know everything that you're doing, and I already got your back." So,
0: be <laughs> like, "You son of a bitch, yeah. I'm in. <laughs> Well, that was quick. Oh yeah, I mean, um. Maybe you should have convinced me a little harder, but I'm here. So what are your guys' favorite parts? I mean, I'm going to go first, but my, my favorite part of the book has got to be the character banter. It is, Abnett has just a really great way of making people talk to one another, and it feels awesome. It's not like watching a fucking Marvel movie where everybody is just like saying one thing and then thing happens it's the characters are, are all basically likable. Um, you know, even Nemet Jira, like he comes off as just this pompous douchebag. But at one point, like in, in the kind of beginning middle of the book during like the big, uh, the big battles, it's like you get the sense that he is a competent officer most of the time. And it basically makes him a likable guy up until he's not, because he becomes kind of so paranoid that you're like, okay, you love to hate this guy, right?
2: Yeah, I mean the Namjitjira dynast chain stuff, it didn't have too much screen time in the books, but it was really well written. A- anything with the Lucifer blacks is really cool. I mean this was I think this was Dan Abnett's creation specifically for this book and it became so popular of a concept that other authors started to introduce other Lucifer Black characters into other novels. I think, if I remember, are they still around in 40k? I don't recall. I could have sworn I've read something 40k-wise that had them in it even. I think they were, because
0: I think that they still guard the Imperial
2: Palace. Yeah, which, I mean, that's pretty crazy. A, A throwaway regimental unit that Dan Abnett designs is kind of a fun thing for this book. All of a sudden becomes like a massive piece of canon that's going to carry out For all the lore, it's a pretty cool idea.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that plays into my favorite part, which is getting to see the personality of all these army units. Like, the characters themselves, but uh, at at a unit level, you get to see just a, you know, it's really interesting, and, and it gives the army a lot of character. It's nice to not just see the Imperial army as a backdrop, it's nice to see like unmodified humans out conquering the galaxy.
0: I know we got a lot of uh, a lot of human perspectives in the last book in Descent of Angels, but this takes it to another degree in that these humans are not aspiring to be Astartes at any point. They're just regular dudes doing their best. And it's it's really interesting, especially the how the... Geno-Chiliads don't function like regular kind of Vox and officer-driven infantry. They've got this this whole psychic uh, sept that drives them. It's very, very interesting to me. Like The the Chiliads are so
2: cool. Yeah, really interesting concept. We didn't really talk about it in the book, but I always thought it was interesting. They're, you know, company first, Imperium second, Gino before Gene. Like this idea that there's this crusade force rolling around that's like, yeah, the Imperium takes second place to us, which kind of goes back into some little lore about them and how they originally were fighting against the Emperor in the Unification Wars. That's a fun little... Little things like that that really give them character. So the the
0: emperor, it said that uh, in that first interaction with um, early interactions with Alfaris, he says that the emperor actually took the chiliads into consideration when making the legios. So it was it was big on the emperor's mind.
2: But yeah, overall a pretty good book. Uh, do you have any stuff in particular you don't like? I know you were mentioning, Brandon, that you were there was a couple of the like tell and not shown sections you didn't like. Was there anything besides that first fight?
1: Yeah, the entire withdrawal from Nerf. Mm, yeah. I mean, that's, none of that is shown.
0: Right. So that basically cuts off where Grammaticus is like, you've got to get off the planet. And in the next scene, he has just been in custody for like six months. And then Sonica has a little narrative about how it was pell getting off the planet. We lost a bunch of assets. Now that Jira got shit on by the Mechanicum, that was it. So that I can see how that would be frustrating. I kind of wonder how Abnet would have done it differently. But like describing that evacuation of the planet. Would that have changed the story for you if you knew how all that happened?
1: Well, i I think you can do a lot of this character development that he does in conversations. I think you could you could still. Th- this book has the opposite problem to me that most pieces of any kind of media have. Most pieces of media are light on story and heavy on plot. This store this one is heavy on story and light on plot. Does that make sense?
2: It it feels almost like it's a lot of like really short vignettes. That jump point to point to point.
0: Yeah, basically. So you don't always get a lot of in-between. Which is why
2: you do get a lot of characters. And you get a lot of like interesting little stories and ideas. But yeah, cohesively, sometimes it can feel choppy. Like the end of the Nerthine fight where John's like, I'm going to go left. They're going right. And that's it. They don't really talk about the fight or the retreat but i think a lot of that too kind of goes down to a lot of it is to kind of give you this weird disconnect between the actions of the characters and what they're saying because it focuses a lot on what they're talking about and then kind of glosses over a lot of what they're doing um i think a good example is the cabal you spend a lot of the book being told how amazing the cabal is and how infallible the acuity is but all of that's just talk it's either the cabal or john saying that but then you look at the actions and it's like well They missed a black cube, which there's only five in existence, and they pick the one planet that it's on. You know, they're off on the heresy by about two years. They mistime it, which, you know, obviously that one you could give a little leeway to. You know, they set up all this stuff with the Alpha Legion, and it all just falls apart because they don't value or appreciate how, you know, accomplished the Alpha Legion are at subterfuge, like... It's their actions don't match up to a lot of their words. And because the actions kind of get played out kind of in a, you know, tell, don't show sort of way, what you're left with is a lot of the book is like, yeah, you should trust the cabal. It's amazing. But in the back of your mind, you're like, I kind of pick up some weird thing because they didn't focus on it. But a lot of their actions don't add up. And I think that really plays through on a lot of stuff.
1: Well and, and and my problem I think with a lot of these is that it's it's a intense moment that just gets skipped completely over. So using the the escape from Monlo Harbor after they, they all get compromised as an example, they're running through, they're getting confronted by demons in the shape of lizards. You know, it's this highly intense moment, and you're like, oh man, like how the hell are they gonna get out of here? And then it just goes to, oh they did.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because the point of the book is that that's not important. What's important is getting to the acuity, and so they just gloss over a lot of that stuff.
0: So I will definitely take a little bit of lack of explanation over a lot of over-explanation. And I think a good example of that is I recently, uh, between books, I read Orc Slayer, which is the first Gotrick and Felix book that wasn't written by William King. And holy fuck, is it tedious. Like, the fight scenes just go on and on and on. I can't remember what author it was, but he has to describe every swing of the blade, you know, every parry, every footstep, and it gets so effing tedious. I don't need that. I I will take a little under-explanation over... too much over-explanation, if you know what I mean. As annoying as it gets in Legion, the lack of explanation... It's it doesn't kill the story for me. It doesn't really slow down the slow down the flow of the book for me. It I feel like in a way it fits. It's not ideal, but yeah. yeah I, I disagree. I think it
1: completely messes up the flow of the book because you're just getting jerked around from scene to scene. Like you're just dragged to the next scene. There's no transition there.
2: It feels a lot like uh, it, it is. It's little vignettes that are specifically tied to a through. A through line story and they cut out all the filler episodes so you know it again it, it lets you focus on that main storyline a little better while also being able to introduce characters and it just cuts the fluff which does mess with the pacing a bit but i do like it and and when i look at
1: when i look at a book like this that's like heavy on story and you know there's a lot of characterization and things that don't necessarily play in that aren't important to the overarching plot. Like, again, we, we use Strabo as an example there. What I honestly, like the first book that I think of when I think of that is like the Lord of the Rings, because it's just like that. If you look at like Glorfindel shows up to, to save Frodo and get them to Rivendell, and he's not in the rest of the entire story, but it works there because when you get to the Battle of Helm's Deep, they don't show up at Helm's Deep, and then the hard stop. oh, uh, they won. <laughs> so there's there's a way to do this right, and I yeah. don't think it was done right here. Well,
2: the way to do it right would be the book would have to be a lot longer, which I don't know.
0: And this is a, this is a chunky boy. Like it, it, I don't like. You could probably trim some fat, but I don't think you could trim enough that would fit in what. Brandon feels yeah. like is
2: missing. I would wonder how they would do it differently. I mean, this was, you know, the wild West days of GW where they were kind of flying by the seat of their pants. This is also the, I mean, descent of angels was kind of the point where they realized they weren't going to do like nine books for the heresy. And they were like, we're just going to write whatever. So like books like uh, Mechanicum and Legion were kind of the authors being told, Hey, do whatever you want. Cause we're going to have to write a indefinite amount of these books now so who knows what's going to be coming up
1: yeah now that i think about it i think mechanicum kind of has that problem a bit although i don't feel like it's as defined because mechanicum takes place over a lot longer span of
0: time right so we talked about that in descent of angels where it's like people kind of dislike the book because it doesn't feel like it fits there but basically what we do from from fulgrim on is start it's a new starting point basically so if if descent of angels wasn't the first book to do that which one would it have been because if you put legion mechanicum battle for the abyss damnation of pythos in any of those places it would not it would not feel right that's not my complaint
1: about this book at all i think it fits great into the overarching heresy oh no i'm
0: just I'm just commenting on the the general feeling that Descent of Angels doesn't feel yeah. like it goes well,
2: and feel- the reason for that is it it wasn't supposed to. Like the original plan was, the Heresy was going to be three trilogies, and it was just going to be basically the third through line of the Sons of Horus and Horus fighting the Emperor. And after the first three books came out, they were like, "Oh, we have a." we've hit something special here. This is amazing. New plan. We're going to write as many Horus heresy books as we can get on it. And what you get is Descent of Angels, Legion, and Mechanicum, where they were just like, forget Sons of Horus, write about anything. And so they just kind of like threw together these other books, which is why they definitely don't fit in with what was a through storyline in the first five. But yeah, interesting book. I really did like it. Yep. And should, we, uh, should we wrap
0: up here? Guys? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to want to plug the next book, plug socials, and wrap it up. So uh, the next book in the series is A Battle for the Abyss. Woof. Oof.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, it sucks to be you guys. <laughs>
0: good luck and Godspeed. I, I,
2: I did not want to volunteer yeah, see, for that did,
0: one. We didn't want to ask any. <laughs> We didn't want to ask anybody to join us because okay, we know how bad I it think
1: is. Our, our, our listeners know that when I plug the next book, I always go, this is one of my favorite books. This is not one of my favorite books. <laughs> this one is
0: rough. <laughs> and like, I I don't want to sound like a yes man, but I have liked every book up until this next one. Holy shit, it's not my favorite at all. It is the opposite of that in fact. It is one of my least favorite. It's not the worst book in the series. It's just not a good book.
1: So tune in to listen to us dog on that.
0: Definitely leave us a you know a like or a subscription like, definitely subscribe, share us with your friends. get out there on social media, look us up on Twitter at Legioncast 18, a Horus heresy podcast and send us an email. And we'll, you know, we'll definitely comment on your comments and emails. Uh, email is legioncast18 at gmail.com. Shout us out. Let us know what you think of our what we've got going on here. I feel like we're we're really hitting our strides. So thanks for tuning in. Again, I am Warwick. Joining me was Brandon and Paul, or Alfarius, Alfarius and Alfarius. And we will see you for the next hobby yep. round.
2: Thanks, everyone. And March in Fortune. Thanks for having me on again, guys. Good times.